Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO Molina Leadership Solutions. And today we are continuing with our Women in Leadership series. But before we get to our guest, I want to acknowledge our sponsor for today, Molina Law Group here in Springfield, Oregon. We live in one of the greatest nations in the world. And people want to come to America for many reasons. They want to come to America to go to school. They want to come to America to improve their life. They want to come to America uh, to work as professionals. There's many reasons why people would want to come here. They might want to come on a student visa. They might want to bring their loved one over, a fiance visa. If you're need, if you have needs where you need to bring someone over, you have questions you need to ask about immigration status or the legal processes to do so, Molina Law Group is here to help you. Molina Law Group's phone number is 541-653-8899, 541-653-8899. Molina Law Group is located here in Springfield, Oregon. They can be found on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. This summer, July 2021, they will be opening offices in Beaverton, Oregon, as they expand their uh, service territories. Again, Molina Law Group, for all of your immigration needs and questions, 541-653-8899. Today, we're continuing on with our year-long project titled Women in Leadership, and I'm really excited. I have been wanting to interview our next guest for about a year now. I reached out to her about a year ago and with all that we've been going through, pandemic, economic uh, struggles in our communities, all the other social issues that we've been facing, wildfires, just everything. We have not been able to connect with our, connect together, but today's the day. Today's the day that Mo Young is with Molina Leadership <laughs> Solutions in the Women in Leadership series. Mo is the Equity and Access Coordinator for Lane County. She has been involved within the area of access and equity since 1999 as a volunteer for the Eugene Human Rights Commission. Her biography is extensive. Her area of service, her personal development is also very extensive. So we're going to talk about some parts and pieces of that as we go on in the interview. But I want to begin, I want us to hear from Mo in this moment about um, why her work is so important. First of all, Mo, welcome to Molina Leadership Solutions. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's um, It's been so beautiful this week, and I've been able to take some walks with my family, and that's been really wonderful. Yeah, it's a beautiful day today. I actually rode about 15 miles this morning uh, to just enjoy the weather. I'm looking at one of the documents you sh shared with me regarding a resume. You currently are the Equity and Access Coordinator for Lane County, 2016 to mm -hmm. present. You were the Community Health Analyst too for Lane County from May 2009 to September 2016. You served as Program Services Coordinator for Lane County 2008-2009. You served as a positive youth development coordinator for Lane County, 2008, October 2008, April 2008 to October 2008, excuse me. You served as program coordinator and office manager for CALP or 
we know it as CalCare, but it stands for Community Alliance of Lane County from March 2004 mm -hmm. to October 2008. Your volunteer work includes CASA or Court Appointed Special mm -hmm. Advocates from two, 2014 to 2016. You are a peer coordinator supervising CASA volunteers from 2016 to present. You have volunteered with the United Way Community Investment Steering Committee 2017 to present. And you're a board member for a Centro Latino Americano January 2019 to present. Your education is from the University of Oregon. You have a Bachelor's of Art in Psychology and Sociology. And some of your certific certifications and, and awards are Certified Prevention Specialist 2011 to present, and MLK Junior Community Leader Award recipient in 2018. Your life has been about providing equity, access, representation, and helping others find their voice. Why is that so important to you? Such a good question. Um, so I was born and raised here in Lane County. Um, I am the daughter of two public servants. My mom is also from Oregon. She uh, was a circuit court judge for the last, I think, 20 years of her career. My dad is a black man who came here for law school from Philadelphia in the 70s. Um, and he was a, a administrative law judge, so a, he did private hearings. Um, so I grew up here, this biracial kid into my adulthood. Um, you know, being being in this this state where not a lot of folks look like part of my family, but m most of the folks look like the other part of my family. And I heard a lot of stories of just you know, things that when I was little, I was like, that's not fair. That should be different. Um, and my parents also really raised us to understand that we have a role to play in making things different. So when we see things that aren't fair, we actually need to do something about it. Not only do we need to, but we can. They, they helped us, you know, figure out that we had some sort of power to make change. And so it never really it never struck me that I would do anything different than the work that I'm, that I do and that I've been doing for, you know, my whole career. And so for those that are watching, ladies and gentlemen, I have sent Mo some questions in advance, but as I was rereading her resume and cover letter, things she sent me to know more about her, it just moved me even more to allow this interview to take more of an organic approach. We may get to some of those questions, but there is so much to her life that I want to make sure we give her ample time to shed light on and to hear from her, especially like right now, Mo, um, your mom was a circuit judge for the last 20 years of your life, of her life, I'm sorry, of her career, I apologize. Your father came here as an African-American man in the 70s to go to law school. He was an administrative judge. And they taught you, you do have some kind of power to make change wherever you're at. And you've never seen yourself outside of this role that you're in now in having the ability to make a difference. That is what 
I believe this last year, I think it's fair to say, many of the voices that have come to, to light or to, or to be heard are, are coming from voices that haven't had a chance to be expressed. What is that like for you? This really intrigues me, coming from parents who were judges, held in high esteem and high honor, teaching you that you have the power to do something different to, or to make things different and to make things better. How has that triggered that cultural norm from your family watching the circumstances of this last year unfold before our very eyes? Yeah, I mean, so my parents not only, I mean, they, they also really raised us to believe that we had the duty, like it was our responsibility. Um, and so what I've, what I've seen over the course of the last year has really been, I mean, it's been fantastic to see that other folks are, are either, um, either being heard because systems are making space, right, for folks who historically have not been listened to or asked for, um, you know, their input, but also that there's a bunch of folks out there, white folks in particular, and, and especially here in Oregon, who are, like, finding their voice and finding that it's really, it's really hard to turn away when inequities and injustice um, are in front of you. I, I feel like there's been a huge shift in the last year. There's been a lot of pushback. I'm 56. I was born in 64. My parents and their generations grew up in the civil rights movement in this country. But I still remember in the late 60s, early 70s, being told to leave stores, being told to leave restaurants, my mother trying to buy things for us for school, clothes, shoes, whatever, being told we don't, we're not going to sell to you here. And for many people in communities right now, in this age of 2021, 2020, 2020, 2021, they'll see that as that's not true, that didn't happen, or we're so, they think we're so far removed from it, there's no cognitive. Uh, memory connected to that and for people that are my age I'm thinking oh yes there is there is very real connection and cognitive memory to that kind of behavior and that kind of conduct that in this country was legal and was the cultural norm of the day mm -hmm. what do you see now as do you think we are making true progress breaking away from the norms that are felt like they've been trying to hang on? I mean, I don't want to say I don't see progress because I feel like there there's progress. I also feel like, um, you know, white supremacy is a sneaky thing and it's, it's really, it's really good at adapting and changing with the times. So, folks aren't allowed to say things like you can't shop at my store, but people are still getting followed in the store. Um, you know, we're not allowed to be explicitly racist, but that doesn't mean that it went away. It just means that, that people 
who either explicitly feel those things or who are implicitly acting out in these, um, you know, these cultural norms are doing so in ways that are harder to maybe put your finger on, but the effects of it, I mean, we're still feeling that. With your work in equity and access, I've, I've thought a lot about you since the pandemic started. I've, I've heard a lot about you. Everyone talks about you in the community. And I thought to myself more than once about your role, your specific role, and how many people turn to you for a sense of expertise, a sense of validation, a sense of um, confirmation that what we have been dealing with is indeed real and true. This series is about women in leadership. How has it been for you as a woman in leadership for our county, caught in the midst of you're biracial, you're bicultural, and this evolving moment in time where I believe history is reshaping itself before our very eyes. And I believe that's what's taking place. How, what has that been like for you as a woman in a leadership position, participating as well, not only in it, but observing it unfold? I mean, we only have, what, an hour and a half of this conversation? I feel like um, I feel a lot of different ways about it. I feel excited about it. I also feel like um, it's been really important for me to help folks remember that we've been doing this for a long time. Um, and so movement isn't fast, right? Like policies don't change quickly. Um, culture doesn't shift quickly. And so there's this, especially for folks that are new to this, there's this like, impatience for change and that's unfortunate I mean like I wish change happened quickly and in my experience it doesn't and so helping a help other folks slow down or um or at least shift maybe their expectations of what they'll see change and when um and then the thing like for me just as a human having to remember that um that we have to pace ourselves. So like, I can't do everything at the same time. And if I try, I will fail. Um, and my health will be hurt. I also, um, you know, you brought up this idea of folks coming to me for a variety of things. Um, and I don't, I don't actually believe that there are like experts in equity. And so it's hard for me when folks come to me as an expert in this field I know that I study a lot. I know that I, you know, every waking moment is I'm thinking about systems change and culture shifts, but I also know that I have a ton to learn and there's a ton that I don't know. And so some of the things that help me kind of hold both those things at the same time is I do a lot of therapy with a very smart therapist who understands systems and who can help me like not take on this burden of having to walk the whole community through anything. Because I, I can't do that. Well, thank you for your candor and your vulnerability. I really appreciate that. And that is one of the reasons why I thought about you a lot the last year, because I was concerned about the amount of pressure, just a, just a perception and observation on my part, what that pressure must have been like on you. 
when people think, well, we'll just ask Mo. And, and you said, movement isn't fast. Policy doesn't change quickly. We have to pace ourselves. And we can't do everything at once because if we try, we'll, we're going to fail. You're right. not an expert. None of us are. are I, I really don't like that term very much because yeah. I don't think anyone is an expert in anything. We can get to a certain level of achievement, understanding, and then we mm -hmm. look to one individual person far too much at times, I believe, and discount other perspectives. But that being said, and I thank you for saying that. I thank you for saying you're seeing a therapist to help you deal with the expectation, to deal with um, the demand. You're still in the position. Yeah. You're still the one. You're mm -hmm. still a biracial woman, a woman in leadership that was hired to facilitate these types of conversations and this kind of change in Lane County, Oregon. What kind of support systems are being provided to you by the county to help you in this incredible, incredibly awesome task you find yourself in right now? Um, in the last probably 18 months, we created or pulled together a cohort of folks to go through a training. So eight of us went through it. It's through the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. And that team, so it was a nine-month program, once a month, um, it ended in February of 2020, so just in time for us to all stay home. Um, but that team has become what we're calling the Racial Equity Core Team. And so the good news is now I'm not, um, I'm not so siloed, right? We've got folks from across the, the agency. The, the less great news is that it's not in any of their job descriptions, right? And so it's, it's an add-on. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully in this, this upcoming budget or the budget after adding positions. I think it's, um, you know, your budget is your moral document and it's hard to, it's hard to make a, budget that's balanced with so few resources coming in. Um, I also know just from being in this position for four and a half years that this is an isolating position. Um, you know, if you're doing it right, people are unhappy with you. Mm -hmm. And the people that are unhappy are going to shift depending on what it is that you're doing. But, um, but that doesn't, you know, the the relationships at work, um, especially since we're so remote, are um, they're different than they were when I was in public health. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I've got, there are a couple of folks at work that I um, have known for, you know, the bulk of my life doing this work. And so they are here for me, like, you know, if I need to talk about feelings, that's the other thing about this. So my job in equity generally is very feeling oriented. It's relational at its core. Um, and government work is not necessarily that. Um, and so being able to find folks that I can have, you know, deep connections with has been really helpful too. I appreciate that distinction regarding what you're doing at the government level 
Do you feel like you can make some uh, reasonable commentary on the private sector in this area of equity and access? Um, you know, I don't have a ton of uh, I don't have a ton of experience with the private sector in this. I know that. Um, what do I know? I know that especially this last year, it's become kind of the thing to do. So like make racial equity statements and, you know, have some clip art of diverse people on our web pages. Um, I know that there's a lot more money in the private sector, depending on what, you know, of course, on what the, um, what area of it you're talking about. But, you know, I know folks like Google and Facebook and Amazon, they've got huge, you know, huge departments that are dedicated to this work. Um, but I couldn't tell you, like, are they actually making change? I mean, the bottom line there is that we make money. The bottom line at the county is that we've served the community in a better way. So, and those are really different goals. I appreciate that. Let me ask you, let me rephrase. Let me give you a different question. Whether government, whether private or public, does the definition of equity and access and our responsibilities to it, in your opinion, change? No. Has there any, has any uh, of the private sector here in Lane County contacted your office or our governmental leadership asking for support in asking questions, having questions answered, or putting on some kind of an instructional conferences for them? I've had folks reach out and ask for like resources, for trainings. Um, I, I actually ended up putting together like an email that I can send to folks that has documents with like, here's who can do training. Here are some ways that you can train yourself. Because um, I, you know, I can't be the one. I mean, I am the one, but I can't be the, the one. So um, so I would say, yeah, folks who are in the private sector, nonprofits, other government partners reach out for sure. Um, and I, I do what I can. In this moment in time that we find ourselves in with the social unrest, with the, the, the increasing voices demanding to be heard, has this create a conversation between you and your mother and your father about maybe some of the things they experienced and what was it, what's it like for them if you feel like you can share as they observe this moment in time we're in um i would say that i would say they're excited um i would I would also say that my dad, you know, my dad is 74. Um, you know, the things that he's posting right now on his personal Facebook about the, the Derek Chauvin trial are like breaking my heart. Um, Cause I think it's, I think for them, it's, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're still seeing these outcomes. We're still seeing, you know, the things that are happening and, um, and they've been happening for years and years and years, whether that's home ownership, whether that's 
educational, you know, high school graduation rates, whether that's folks who go to college, um, it's all that that's still happening, all of it. In 1971, my father passed away at 39. He had been retired from the military in about a year, maybe a year and a half. And my mother couldn't drive at that time. She was at home taking care of seven kids. And so we got on the bus, public transportation, Greyhound bus to go see her father in New Mexico. That's the first time I'd ever been on public transportation, Mo. It was just me and her and my, me and my twin brother and our mother. And when we got on the bus, I noticed all the black people were in the back of the bus. And there was only two seats left open and they were in the front of the bus. And so my mom, which only had money to pay for one seat. So <clears throat> I was on her left knee and my twin brother was on her right knee. And I remember asking her, mommy, why are all the black people on the back of the bus? And I'll never forget her words to me. She said, because they don't realize that they don't have to stand there anymore. I didn't, obviously I'm seven years old. I didn't know anything about the civil rights movement, but I did, and I didn't really understand the impact of that statement at that time. Uh, but I came to appreciate and understand the impact of that statement. And so in this moment, with the position that you're in, with the role of leadership that you have, and the expectation is upon you, how do you help people understand that our roles are different now? They have shifted and we're not confined, hopefully, or technically, we're not confined to the limiting legal boundaries of the past. Um, I mean, it's not actually that hard for me to, to have those conversations. I think what's, what's harder for me is, um, I'll give you an example as, as a mom, actually, this, I had this conversation this morning. So there's a summer camp, it's for kids of color. It's a science-based camp. My kiddo's in middle school. And I told her about it and she was like, that sounds cool. And then I said, it's for kids of color. And she was like, oh, but why, right? And so I was like, hey, like, let's talk about what equity is and let's talk about what equality is and let's talk about how those, those things are different. So like what we what we see right now are what we what I like to call what I what folks that I, you know, colleagues across the country call our race neutral policies. Right. Everyone has the same chance. Um, and what we don't understand is that not everyone is starting with the same stuff. And the, the example that I used for my kiddo, because she's 11, right, is um. You know, if I'm, if we're both in this room in my office in this house I just moved into, so I've got all this stuff behind me, right? And someone is standing in our kitchen, like twenty feet away, and um, they write something on a on a board, right? And I'm not wearing my glasses, and you are not wearing glasses because you don't need glasses. Who's going to be able to read it? And she said, "Well, I am." I said, "Well, am I going to be able to read it?" She said, "No." I said, okay, so let's pretend now that someone comes and gives us both a pair of glasses with my prescription. So she puts on my glasses and she's like, well, now everything's fuzzy. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I can see just fine. Right. So like, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about equity. We're not talking about a leg up. We're talking about 
like we all have this equal chance, but we don't have the same tools. And so, um, you know, it's, it's everything from opportunities for education. It's everything from um, expectations of behavior from supervisors or from teachers or from store owners or whatever, right? And those things are feeding into the person that we become when we, you know, hit adulthood. And that is what our career and our life prospects depend on. Does that mean that we don't try? No, of course that doesn't mean that we don't try. Of course we try. And and those of us who are in positions to make, you know, policy change and program change, it also means that we think about like, okay, where are the gaps? And how do we how do we fill them? Or how do we at the very least make them less? In this last year I've heard a lot There are no gaps. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not that bad. It's a figment of your imagination. You just want a handout. You just want something free. You don't want to work hard the way we had to work hard. This is all an illusion. What would you say to those? Well, you, I know you've heard and seen some of those too. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of things I would say that are probably not appropriate for your show, but um you know, depending on where, <laughs> where I was, but I guess I would say like, you know, I, we just bought our first house in um, November. So we're super new to this house and to home ownership. And I've been looking a lot at history of home ownership, right? Um, redlining was real. Where banks, who banks would loan to was real. The GI bill going to mostly white folks to a handful of people of color was also real. The other, the other thing that's real, right? So like we have the Equal Housing Act in the 60s, but the other thing that I didn't even know until maybe like two months ago is that credit scores didn't show up until 1989. So between 65, 64, when the, you know, the Equal Housing Bill and 1989, banks would lend to you or not based on what they thought of you as a person. And if you looked like you could pay them back, right? So like we have equal housing and yet we have these, these rules that make it harder. Do they make it impossible? No. Did my mom and dad buy a house in 86? Yes. Um, and still it made it harder, right? And so, and we look at that. So okay, now there's credit scores. I got a lot to say about credit scores. I don't, we don't need to talk about that right now, but so now credit scores show up in 89. Let's say someone, let's say a person of color gets to buy a house in 1989 and they get to hand that down to their kids, right? Because that's how we build generational wealth. Well, when you start in 1989 and someone else started in 1915, there's a gap there, right? There just is. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to not see that. Um, I've been, you know, inundated with COVID data, right? So we just did a press conference on Tuesday and, you know, our, um, our native Hawaiian and Asian communities across Oregon and in Lane County are dying at a rate of 17 times the rate of white folks. How do you explain that away? Like, I don't, 
I don't know how, how to explain that away, except they're being exposed more and there are more pre-existing conditions based on the care that we, whether that's the county, whether that's private medical care, have given or have not. Um, you know, the, the average life expectancy went down for, um, for white folks by one year. In 2020, it went down for black folks by three, went down for Latinx by two. Like those are real numbers. Um, so, so yeah, so I don't, I mean, in, in like professional company, that's what I would say, right? Is that there are many, many examples. It doesn't matter what sector you're looking at. There are tons of examples all over the place of how this is showing up for real people. There is that statistical data as mentioned some of these end results of that data as you've listed here that should be a part of these conversations and when you said when you mentioned about the equal how equal housing act what 65 or 1960 that is the same time frame people were still trying to get rights to vote the minorities were trying to get rights to vote not it, i didn't even think about that until you said that mo we're trying to get access just to buy a house, just to get a loan, right. just to vote, just to just to hear uh, you have enough value in our culture that you get to peaceably exist and have access to the same opportunities uh, that the rest of us have. So yeah. this is really unique hearing hearing you say these things. I just had this wide opening experience in my mind about the things you just said that I hadn't even considered. Thus equity and access. Right? Right. Why it's important. Right. Talk to us a little bit about um, this eight person group that went through this training. What are some of the emphasis or the areas that you're trying to formulate uh, equity and access across the board? Um, so there's three kind of overarching areas. Um, and this is all from the structure from the Government Alliance on Race and Equity. We're looking at normalizing racial equity, organizing, um, you know, to support the work and then operationalizing it. So policies and procedures. So at the county, what we're doing is we're normalizing through training and communication. So internal training of um, county staff, as well as communication internally and externally um, about the work that we're doing and really working to engage community about what work we should be doing. Um, uh, as we look at organizing, we're looking at um, creating like a data dashboard to track our work. And that's where that core team fits into. So having a team of people that are coordinating the work. Um, and the operationalizing of racial equity really comes out in this equity lens tool that we presented to the Board of Commissioners on January, 5th. it was either 13th or 14th, I think it was 13th, it was that Wednesday of that week. Um, so folks wanted to look at uh, the presentation, it's, it's, in, it's on the website. Um, but that lens really asks some pretty simple questions, I mean, when you think about it, but they're they're hard to they're hard to answer depending on what work you're doing. And it's essentially, you know, what's the purpose of what you're trying to do? 
who is affected by this decision that you're making or this program that you're implementing and how have they been engaged in this conversation? How will the decision that you're making um, affect equity? So will it affect it positively, negatively, or will it ignore it altogether? Um, and then essentially, like, how will you communicate about it and with whom? Um, and then how will you know that you've done well? Like, what does success look like, basically? Um, and so we are, we're piloting that right now. And the goal is that these, this tool becomes something that county staff just employ in their everyday decision-making. Um, and what we know about culture change is that's gonna take a while to get set. And for the sake of the audience and even myself, could you just give a little bit more clarification on what does it mean to normalize? And then what does it mean to operationalize? Yeah, so normalize means that these, these conversations become just a part of our everyday, um, that we become more comfortable having these conversations and that it's not a surprise every time, um, you know, and that we can talk about inequities like in a way that um, in a way that we don't feel targeted as like it's your fault, we feel like we're being given an opportunity to address something. Um, and then operationalizing it really, I mean, at, at the core of that word, it's like making it a part of our operations. So that's, you know, the hope is that it becomes part of our process. And in your estimation, Mo, do you feel like you're making, as our representative of the county, but also part of this team, do you feel like progress is being made that there are, I, I believe you're serious, I believe our county is serious, our uh, county commissioners are very serious, but as you said, policy takes time, change takes time. That being said, do you feel like uh, progress is genuine and taking place? I feel like it is. I mean, like, when I first started, we weren't we weren't having anywhere near the conversations that we're having now. Um, you know, when I first started in this position four and a half years ago, um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of culture change that's happened. I would say in the normalizing field, you know, we try to do a third of a third of our work in each category, and I would say. I feel really confident in our normalizing, confident enough to now move into these next two um, kind of fields. Um, we passed a resolution in June of last year um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and acknowledging Lane County's um, has work to do in order to achieve racial equity. And one thing that came out of that is we had eight listening sessions with community. Um, to talk about just what, like, what are the issues that come up at Lane County and how might they suggest that we measure progress and we're gonna be doing um, what we call a root cause analysis um, in a few weeks with community um, to dig down into now that you've said that, like we're doing one on HR practices. So now that you've said that HR practices are something that you wanna see us do more on, let's let's actually drill down and figure out 
what the roots of these issues are and ways to, uh, to, you know, to mend those. Um, so I think, I mean, I think if you would have asked me four and a half years ago, if we would be doing the work we're doing now, I would be like, I hope so, but I don't think so. <laughs> like, like it's, um, there's been a huge, huge shift. I know we were all caught off guard a bit when, you know, after George Floyd was murdered and he was murdered and the fallout nationwide and our fallout locally. I think we're, all of us were caught off guard in some form or fashion you know, for different reasons and different ways. And I think there was a lot of fear on both sides for different reasons as well. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant until I interviewed, you know, I interviewed the black unity leaders, interviewed them for two hours, asked them just about every, well, there was four pages of questions that came into them for them. I give them amazing credit for their willingness to answer those hard questions and sit in that process and make themselves mm -hmm. available. But I will tell you that following weekend, Mo, the messages of hate that I personally received were stunning. If I, if you were to have asked me, Mark, did you, did you think people would send you these kinds of messages? I would have told you absolutely not. This could not possibly be true. Well, I'll tell you, I was as wrong as wrong can be. So if anyone wants to tell me that these issues are not deep issues here, boy, I can tell you, I got some oceanfront property in Arizona. I definitely want to sell you for a premium price. <laughs> So we need this. We have to have these conversations. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. What have you, in your observations, you there at the county and some of this, the team, what have you learned about trying to lead the organization or the community in this direction of equity and access where we are right now in this season that we are right now? What, have your, what are your observations? What have you learned about how is the county doing? How's Eugene Springfield from your observations? I wrote some notes down because I was like, oh my gosh, how do I answer that? Um, so when I think about, so I've learned that, um, I've learned that change is hard. And I've learned, and this isn't maybe for my work, with the county so much as it is with my work with um, community and with community organizers, but I've learned that, you know, we really have to work at the speed of trust, which is not at all what, um, what government wants to do, right? We want to get stuff done. Um, but we really have to work at the speed at which the people trust us. Um, and in order to do that, we have to be trustworthy, right? So we have to show up when we said we're going to show up and we have to be present when we're there. Um, and we have to follow through on what we say we're going to do. Um, I've learned that community has a really long memory um, for better or worse. Um, and I've, and I've also, I mean, I think I knew this, but I didn't, um, 
I didn't know it enough, that there's so much turnover in government in various areas that there's this continual like relearning. Like we don't actually have a really long memory, not nearly as long as the community does. So when we come together to do community work, it's there's a lot, um, there are a lot of opportunities to listen. And depending on um, on who's coming to whichever meeting that is, the listening happens at various levels. Um, what else did I write down? That was a good question. I've learned that I've learned that there are people out there that will follow the rules, no matter what the rules say and how they feel about them. And that if we change the rules to be more equitable, they will shift their behavior accordingly, which is like so interesting to me because I, I, I was raised to be like, this is what's right. Here's our moral compass and we're just going to follow the moral compass and we're not going to break the rules necessarily, but we will find the rules that are wrong and we'll work to fix them. And we'll also work to, to like find where the hole is in that rule to make it work for, um, for everyone. Um, and there are many people out there that are not, that don't operate like that. Um, and then about myself, I've learned uh, that I need to be more patient because like I said, policies and culture shift really slowly. And I am like the least patient person I know. Me too. <laughs> I only giggle because I <laughs> Perfect. In this work of equity and access, especially within the framework of last year, what have you discovered are some of the common fears or misunderstandings that have to be acknowledged that she, she can lead others through equity and access process? So two things come to mind. One is um, this fear of being wrong or being viewed as a bad person. That's a huge fear from folks that attend training. Like, they just want to wait for someone else to step in it. Um, and I think what I would say to that, what I do say to that is this is messy. And, you know, we build spaces that have, you know, I know folks have a lot of feelings about safe space as a, as a term, but I mean, honestly, we build spaces with ground rules um, that include things like, you know, come with positive intent, you know, be open to feedback, don't attack folks for saying the wrong thing, but, you know, be curious about it. Like, so we build, I mean, essentially safe spaces to mess up because none of us are perfect and we're certainly not perfect the first time. So there's that. And then um, the other one that comes up a lot is this, I've, I've heard it called the myth of scarcity. Like if we make things equitable, that doesn't mean that we're going to take stuff away from you, right? The collective view, it means we're going to give folks what they need. Um, and so this idea that there's only so much to go around, like we, this country could take care of all of its members many times over, right? Anyone here could be comfortable um, and healthy, right? If we, if we used our resources accordingly. So that myth of scarcity also. Myth of scarcity.
I would like to say that from my understanding of that myth of scarcity, it applies to, from what I can see in the cultural arguments of the day and of our communities and, and the nation, that means we can't have universal health care because whatever. We can't have affordable college educations because whatever. And I think that, you know, we are still one of the nation, richest nations on the planet. And if we could direct our resources to some other things besides war, I'm a former soldier, I know what I'm talking about in the military budget. And yes, I believe we have to have the ability to protect ourselves, things of that nature. But um, I was, it's interesting, Mo, I read, I was reading a book a long, several years ago about when I was in Germany in the army and demilitarizing Germany forced them to put all of their creative energies into their, how they rebuilt their nation, how they rebuilt their infrastructure, how they rebuilt their educational system. And it was blossoming. And the same thing in Japan you know, post-World War II, how we, once being demilitarized, all that, you know, once it got cleaned up from the two atomic bombs, they were able to redirect their entire economic infrastructure and educational system for the advancement of the nation and the people as a whole because the emphasis was no longer uh, militarization. So I believe we do have some really good living examples on the planet as to what that can look like. Right. So this uh, uh, this aspect of this myth of scarcity for me that's how it comes to life my understanding of it. In your opinion, your observations, what are some of the the things you think our society is doing well locally in trying to learn from this last year of social expression or unrest, as some would define it, and should it be characterized? Let me. I asked you this question because I look at it now. And I'm thinking, should it be characterized as unrest? I love that. Um, I'm going to start with that. I like it so much. I actually, I mean, unrest is a fine, I guess, term for it. I'm, I'm like, I see it as like people just being fed up. Um, so I think many more people have had their eyes kind of opened to what is happening, what's been happening. Um, and they have a whole lot of feelings about it. And I think that's a beautiful thing because, you know, there there is enough wrong that there are enough feelings to go around. Um, and I think, I think one thing that's going, there's a couple, there's more than a couple. Two other things that come to me that I think are going well. One is this this idea of mutual aid and community care. Like we're seeing people come together in ways that have been happening all along, but have not been happening on a scale like they are with COVID. And then also on top of that with, um, you know, post George Floyd, um, you know, people taking care of their neighbors, people bringing food, people um, saying things like, I can't, I don't feel safe going outside or driving my car 
could someone go do the thing for me? And people are just, they're just doing it. Um, so I, I mean, and there too, there's a couple of things going well. One is that people are meeting the needs when they're being asked, but also people are asking, right? We live in this society where we're raised to be so self-sufficient and that's not actually what humans are, right? We depend on one another. And so being able to ask for help and then being able to provide that help, um, I think has been, it's been awesome to see. Um, and in our institutions, I think one of the things that's going well is that like leadership is listening um, and they're listening in ways that are different than than it was, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, and I think we're making progress. It's like, it's hard to tell because we're still in this pandemic. So we're all still working from different places and we're not in um, like meeting spaces together. But, but when I think about, you know, policies that are happening and community engagement that's happening. You know, the city is doing this ad hoc committee on police policy reform. They're paying folks who are participating. Um, you know, there's there's just so much effort being put into um, eliminating barriers for participation in ways that I have not seen at this level before. Um, so that's been that's been super nice. What about this concept of should it be characterized as unrest, in your opinion, what we've been seeing? I mean, I guess, I don't, I guess maybe I just don't know the, I don't see unrest as being like a, like a bad thing. So, um, I think that's fine. I think, um, and, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just don't have the definition, right? Um, I do think we're at this kind of tipping point where community across the nation is seeing very clear examples of injustice and are not okay with it. Um, I don't see anything. I think that's great. <laughs> you know, for me personally, it, it all kind of freaked me out initially. You know, I'm, I wasn't, I was a child when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I wasn't, I don't have memories of seeing things that were happening in Selma and these other places. And so here it was kind of unfolding in front of me, us, right? And I wasn't sure really what any of it meant. I, I've where did our peace go yep. was my thought you know where did our peace go what's happening in our country why is this happening now why didn't it so i wasn't around for the watch riots i didn't see that i didn't see any of those things so i guess i'm, I'm just being vulnerable too that i didn't understand it and it scared me i didn't understand what was happening why couldn't we talk why weren't we having conversation why weren't we helping one another understand where this pain was coming from? 
And that's why it was really important to me to host the Black Unity Leader for those two hours to try to facilitate and create uh, conversation. And I'd just like to say too, while we're live, that I approached many of the Patriot groups and who initially said that they would also be interviewed to try to facilitate conversation. And in the end, they all refused. So, and that's fine, but you have to give the Black Unity Leaders credit due to them for their courage yeah. To avail themselves to that process. If you can make a statement to those struggling with all of the messaging, regardless of the organization it's coming from, what advice would you give to them, Mo? Like folks who don't support the messaging? No, just if you could say, like you said earlier, you said it's messy. Yeah. We're all trying to figure out what's the right thing to say. What's I mean, I didn't want to just say what I just said about it scared me, but I had needed to say it because it did. I didn't understand. And so what would you say to people that, that, that are afraid to say it, that don't really know what they feel, that don't really know what they think? What do we, how do we effectively give people the permission to say it's okay, no matter what comes next, I mean, it's okay, let's have this conversation. I mean, honestly, Mark, I would just say that, right? So like I've, I've practiced being maybe more, more vulnerable than I would otherwise because I want other folks to, to know that I'm someone that they can be vulnerable with. So the more, first of all, the more you do it, the less, like I'll use my daughter's when she's 11, the less cringy it feels, right? Um, but also the more vulnerable we are with, with where we're at with this, the more other folks will share with us. Um, and I think too, like in terms of having the conversation, finding folks that, that are your safe people, right? We all have friends that we've known for our whole lives that we have made mistakes in front of before, and we will make mistakes in front of again, and that and we can practice having these conversations and like, you know, run, running ideas past each other. Um, so figure out who your people are. And that's different for all of us. Um, and just start there. Like we don't have to, we don't have to start big. We can start really small. I think that's important. We don't have to start big. We can start really small. I'm just writing that down because that's really important. Now, there's this concern, cancel culture. Mm -hmm. What are your, what's your opinion on that? What's the, what are some of the conversation pieces you think are important around this idea of cancel, canceling the culture in the sphere of equity and access? I mean, I have a hard time with cancel culture and, and part of what, so another one of your questions, I'm going to skip ahead and then I'll come back to it. Another one of your questions was what books am I reading? And one of them is called, um, we do this till we free us abolitionist organizing and transforming justice. And it's by a woman named Miriam Kaba. And, um, the reason I bring that up is because I've been reading like everything I can get my hands on about transformative justice um this past like year and a half or so uh and the and the idea of that is that 
people can can harm other people, whole communities. And um, if they are ready for coming together and healing and repairing that, and if the person or group that they have harmed are ready for that, there can be this really beautiful process of, of, um, of mending, of repairing, and of transforming the community into one where we have real strong boundaries around what we will or we won't allow. Um, and where people make pretty terrible mistakes and are able to work with community to figure out how to right those mistakes. Um, and, you know, cancel culture doesn't give us an opportunity for that, right? It's cancel culture says you did this one thing this one time and now you're out. Um, there are plenty of examples of times where I could imagine saying that to someone. Right? If someone hurt my kid, I am not sure that I would say, okay, let's mend this relationship. So I also totally understand where it's coming from. Is that equitable? Is that fair? Humans are messy, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it becomes, it becomes stickier and more kind of nuanced when it's person to person harm. Um, I don't know. I mean, and again, it would depend on the person, right? But if someone makes a statement that harms a community, makes a statement that harms a person, an individual, that can be fixed, but only if they're open to fixing it, right? It doesn't become fixed because the community says, well, we'll let you off. It becomes fixed when the person says, oh, I am so sorry that I said this thing. Here's what I've learned. I promise to do my best to never say it again, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess my like short answer to that is it's tricky and I understand why some folks would be canceled. Um, and I'm really committed to learning about how do we transform our culture into one where um, mistakes can be made and people can be embraced by community healing. I appreciate that observation, Mo. I was watching the news the other day. It's been a few weeks. I don't really watch the news much anymore because it's so heartbreaking. But uh, one of the segments was, the subject matter was, we've lost the ability to forgive each other in America. And the harm that that's bringing all across the board, from community to community to city to city, county to county, state to state, across the breadth of our nation, we no longer give give one another the benefit of the doubt. We just come to a place where we have been at odds now for these last couple of years or last several years that has created this instant uh, antagonism where peace is no longer a viable option. And I, so I appreciate what you your comments just now. I think it's important. I, how did the generations before survive not having the right to vote, not being able to buy a home, not being able to shop in certain stores, Jim Crow laws, all of those things. How did they manage to overcome and continue on with their lives successfully, nobly, honorably, and continue to move forward in ways that gave the rest of their family hope? And those are, these are questions I think about my parents all the time, their generation and the ge generation that came before them is how did they overcome? Mm -hmm. And I remember Mo, growing up, our mother would always say to us that 
No one owes you anything. You owe it to yourself. You have to work hard. You have to do your job. You have to get good grades and on and on and on. And, and so my parents didn't really talk much about the challenges that they faced, but how they lived in spite of those challenges was much like the generation that they were a part of that they had to keep pressing on with a sense of a sense of moral good will prevail if we keep doing the hard work would you agree with that observation i mean i think there are plenty of examples of where that is true and there are plenty of examples where that is not true um and so i think it depends on who you are and where you find yourself. Um, I mean, I don't really have a better answer than that. I know that in the second grade, my kiddo was convinced that she was terrible at math because her teacher had incredibly low expectations for her ability. And what that has built for us is her knowing that she has to work harder. This is how we frame it, right? You have to work harder at math. She asked this for a tutor two years ago. She's in sixth grade, right? So in fourth grade, she asked us for a tutor. And she's been seeing him. Well, he just, his wife just had a baby. So they haven't, they haven't talked to her for like a month. But, um, but you know, it's taken this long to build up her, um, like, what she believes she can do. Because of what somebody told her, right, this person in a place of power, um, is she bad at math? No. Does she believe that? She's getting there. Um, so I think, yeah, we, yes, everyone should work hard, right? No one should get things just handed to them. And also, like, we have people who are consciously and unconsciously making decisions that affect us in ways that we don't understand and that we won't understand until later. And depending on how many of those people are in any like one moment of our life, we may be successful despite them and we may, we may fail. Um, so I think, I think, I mean, I know that's not like a clear answer, but, but I think, like I said, there's plenty of examples of folks who like, were super successful despite. And can you imagine how much more successful they would have been if those things hadn't been in the way? Mm -hmm. That's Those are really good points. And um, with our positions of power, we have a responsibility and we have to be mindful towards the outcome. The outcomes we say we want should be the outcomes that our lives are speaking. How does, in your observation, the things that you've done, in, in your work in the area of public health, what did you learn about our need as a community to ensure everyone has access to the health systems and health professionals? I learned a lot of things. Um, I mean, some things that really stand out. So like Lane County is the size of the state of Connecticut. Right. So one of the things that we talk about is access. If you live in, if you live up Blue River, there's a clinic up there now, but there wasn't forever. So it's 50 miles into town, into Eugene. 
to see a doctor. Um, if you don't have a car, how are you going to do that? If your car is unreliable, how are you going to do that? If you ride the bus, how are you going to do that? And that's true for all of our rural areas, right? Um, you know, some other things that that show up for me are, you know, culturally sensitive um, healthcare providers, right? So like, not just that all of our providers have gone through training, but that we actually have providers who are people from communities that they're serving for a variety of things. But like one of them, one example is, um, you know, there are certain, there are certain health, I don't even want to say risks, like health things that come up for people, like more often for people of different demographics and if your doctor doesn't know that or doesn't know that that's important to remember, you're at a disadvantage, right? You may end up with something worse than you would have if they were looking for it. Um, I think about language access. Um, I've, I've been registering people of color all day for uh, COVID vaccine appointments. And uh, they've been calling me <laughs> this whole time. Um, and and one thing that I'm realizing is that like I'm sure we have a spirit form to fill out. It's not something that I have like just seen, you know, easily, right? I clicked on one and there's like a couple of words in Spanish. I'm like, but if I'm if I don't read English, what do I do? Um and then also that like people will go to folks that they trust, right? And so there are many of us who have spent years building trust with different places in our community. And um, for better or worse, right, we're the ones that, that folks go to when they need something. And I mean, certainly I want people to come to me always when they need something. And sometimes I can't do it, right? Like sometimes I just, I'm doing something else. And it's not because I don't want to help. It's because I'm just, I'm one person. Um, so, so yeah, so language access, culturally sensitive care, just um, location access, those are some things that come up for me. Um, and then just like this lack of, of mental health just across the board, this lack of both therapists, um, just generally therapists, therapists of color, certainly, and then also um, psychiatrists. How does having access to public health, how does that improve our communities? I think it's an important conversation. Well, so public health, um, you know, the focus of public health is like, it's like universal health for all the people. So they're looking not at like this one moment where you're sick, but they're looking at how do we make our whole world a place where you have access to decisions that will help make you more healthy. So whether that's, you know, the layout of the town, are there sidewalks on your street? Is there a park? Do you live near a grocery store that has fresh vegetables? Like, all, is it safe to go outside your house? Um, so, so having access to public health, when we have enough funding and we're doing it right, means that everyone has access to the things that they need to be healthy. Um, now that includes things like primary care doctors and mental health providers, but it certainly doesn't, um, it doesn't stop there. 
you were involved with the positive youth development. Things going on with the youth in our communities today. Have we forgotten them? Are they lacking positive outlets? There's so many restrictions now on youth being able to work because I was able to work at 14. Are, in your opinion, are we hurting their ability to grow as future employees and the future of our workforce? I mean, so first I'll say that was like the most fun job I've ever had in my life. Um, and I, you know, are we forgetting? We're, we, the collective we, the adults in the world are always forgetting the youth and that they have tons of good stuff to say. Um, some of the ways that we don't include them are very, maybe not, um, well, no, I'm gonna say they're intentional. So like we have meetings where like, we wish the youth would talk to us, but they're at nine o'clock on a Wednesday, like they're in school. Um, I don't think there's a lack of positive outlets. I think there's a lack of anything right now because of COVID, right? They just can't do much. Um, so that's super tough. I think that there are a lot of ways for youth to plug in. I think that the problem becomes that it um, it depends a lot on adults in their life to get them from place to place. Um, so if a kid has, you know, adults in their house who are working during whatever hours and they really want to participate in some program that's across town but they don't drive and they don't take the bus or whatever like they can't get there um so I think and I'll plug I one of the it's not on my resume but I'm on the board of Ophelia's place also so like one of the things that that we're doing is is making sure that um that all of the offerings are available remotely and my hope is that that continues even post-COVID because you know, if a kid can get there, there's a ton of really good stuff for them. But if a kid can't get there, you know, what, what, then what? Um, and I think that's true for youth programming just across the board. And for those that are listening and don't know, what is Ophelia's place? It's a, um, it's a nonprofit here in Eugene and, um, well, Lane County, but located in Eugene and also in Albany um, that serves girls and female identified youth ages 10 to 18 and we offer therapy and after school programming and things like spring break camp and summer camp and um, support groups for kiddos for for young people and there's also um like a leadership component if if the girls want to participate very good in your work with kelk in the area of hate and bias, what do we need to know about the existence of these? Now, this is kind of a broad thing. You've talked about this, but I think we still act like these things aren't real. We have coined new terms like, if you're liberal, you're you're a snowflake. Um, the idea is people are too easily offended now. What would you say with that line of thinking? Is it are we too easily offended, or? Are people just saying enough is enough? I mean, I guess I, I wonder, I always wonder like, who is it that's saying that we're too easily offended? Because if you're driving by with a Confederate flag and you yell the N-word at my little brother, like I'm, that's not being too easily offended. That's someone who's like pointedly targeting. So, you know, like 
so what I would say is that hate is alive and well um, in our area. The Northwest has always been a place where, um, you know, hate has taken root. I mean, our state was established as a white utopia, right? Um, and it hasn't gone away. Um, and we've got, you know, white supremacist groups that are recruiting kids online. They're recruiting white kids online. Um, and they're looking for kids that are isolated and they're looking for kids who want connection and they're providing the same sort of support that any gang would provide. Um, and their focus is hate towards people of color and often violence towards people of color. Um, and I, that certainly exists here. It hasn't gone away. Yeah, it's just always interesting how I think that there's this concern that we are too politically correct now. And I always think to myself, when the there's the people that complain about that who really don't want to have a conversation around that you know i know what it is to be on the other side of that open targeted commentary and open targeted name calling and opening open target mal malicious treatment so yeah, I can appreciate some political correctness because I know what happens or what can happen when that is totally disregarded and thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. I personally don't see that as someone necessarily being too liberal or a snowflake because they're just insistent, mm -hmm. hopeful and insistent in some cases that just a measure of respect is given. Right, I always tell people if you know if you know better, then you got to do better, right? And like, I think that people, when when I'm told that I've done something that hurt someone, that's a gift, right? They care enough about me and their relationship with me to help me do better so that we can stay connected in the way that we were before. If they don't tell me, then every time I say whatever it is, then I'm hurting their feelings. And they're going to pull away from me, whether they whether they know that that's what they're doing or not, whether that's intentional or not. Um, and so I agree. I, I feel like political correct, like it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about people just don't want to mess up. Right. So I don't want to be wrong. So I'd rather just tell you that you're being politically correct and that's stupid than to like accidentally say the wrong thing. And that's I think that's too bad. Right. I think one of the coolest things about um getting older and being in community with one another is that we get to learn every day if we're lucky mm -hmm. um better ways of being we get to learn new pieces of knowledge like whatever it is but that's a piece of that very good what are some of the other books you're reading um i am also reading a book called 400 souls um, there's a subtitle to that. Hold on. A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. And that's a really cool book that's um, it's edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha Blaine. And um, it's there are 90 different authors on that book. And they take 
five years each of that 400 year period and just write two to three pages about that five year period. Um, so that's been super interesting to read. Um, and then I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a lot of books right now. Um, I'm reading a book called The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. It's been compared, he's been compared to like Toni Morrison as an author. So that's my fiction book. Um, and then I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass, which I think I'll be probably reading this whole year. It's written by an Indigenous woman who's a, I can't remember what kind of plant scientist, but she's a plant scientist and she weaves science and her culture into like the most beautiful soul-affirming book I maybe have ever read. Wow, amazing. I'll have to re-listen to this and write all of those down. Uh, what are some of the things you do as a leader, as a woman in leadership? You're in a high-stress position. Now, you mentioned you go, you do see a therapist to help handle all of this uh, expectation on your life. But what are some of the other things that you do? Um, last night, I went on a walk with my family, and we laid in the grass together, and that was really fun. Um, when it's safe, I travel um, I'll be actually leaving town at the end of May for a week, but traveling, like working super hard. My, the lesson I hope my kiddo learns is that we work really hard so we can play really hard. So when I'm here, I'm all in. And when I'm gone, I'm not in here at all. Um, which is, you know, it's, I'm a work in progress for sure, but I'm trying. Um, and I read, I read a ton. What are your final comments or what kind of comments would you like to make to our, our, our audience regarding leadership and our need to be involved to facilitate a positive change in our community? Um, I think regarding leadership, one of the things that, um, that I think is important is to know that we all are leaders in different parts of our life. Um, so like, I don't particularly view myself as a leader. I hear that I'm wrong. So I'm, I'm, I'm allowing the community to decide that for me. But I think it's important that we remember that we're all leaders um, and that we all have the power to make change in our circles and that we don't have to wait for self-proclaimed or community-proclaimed leaders to do it for us. I think that's super important. Um, and I, you know, what I would say about, what I would say about equity in this moment is that, um, you know, please find a place to plug in, find a place to make change. It's, there are, there are plenty of opportunities, um, whether that's community groups, whether that's advisory boards for your city, for the county, um, there's no lack of opportunities and we need you there. We don't need the same people that we've had, you know, for the last hundred years. So Very that's good. what I would say. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today, Mo Young, Access and Equity Coordinator for Lane County. Mo, what a very revealing conversation with you. I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. I know there's so much more to talk about. It's hard to condense your amazing experiences and amazing life into 90 minutes. So hopefully you'll accept an invitation to come back for an extended conversation uh, in the very near future.
I want to stop and recognize our sponsor once again, uh, Molina Law Group, local immigration law practice in Springfield, Oregon. They can be found on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. They will be opening Molina Law Group in Beaverton, Oregon in July. And their phone number is 541-653-8899. Mo, thank you. Thank you for participating in our year-long project, Women in Leadership. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for making yourself available. And we look forward to the great work that you're doing and to many more future conversations. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a very good day. You too.